0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Clark Irvin. I'm delighted to welcome you to the continuation of our speaker series. Those of you who are regulars here know that we began a tradition some years back, so many years back, I can't remember quite when, of marking February by focusing on the life and times of a given president over the course of three Sundays. We have not, however, aside from one talk, as you recall at the end of our season last year, focused on First Ladies, there was one talk on Mrs. Bush, Uh, All of that ends today. Since we have with us, fortunately, I think it's fair to say America's foremost expert on First Ladies, Kate Anderson Brower. Kate Anderson. Kate and I were chatting. She's a noted journalist and author. She's written three books about the White House, two of which have been New York Times bestsellers. Those books are, and I see that some of you have a couple of them, which is great. The books are The Residence Inside the Private World of the White House, First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies, and First in Line Presidents, Vice Presidents, and the Pursuit of Power. She's covered the White House for Bloomberg News during President Obama's first term and before that she worked as a producer at both CBS News and Fox News. She is also now a CNN contributor and I'm sure many of you like I have seen her there and she's written articles for the New York Times, Vanity Fair, the Washington Post, and the Smithsonian. She's a graduate of Barnard College and Oxford University, and with that, please, oh, I should also mention, by the way, that uh, we are joined by her husband, Brooke, in the back there, and their three children, including a four-month-old. So, with that, please join me welcoming Kate Anderson. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much, Clark, and thanks for the shout-out to my my kids and my husband back there. Um, It's an honor to be here this morning. Um, As you know, every president and first lady since James Madison has attended services here, and I have a soft spot for Dolly Madison, who I'm sure sat in these pews at some point, and she famously went into the White House and rescued the George Washington portrait during the War of 1812, so I'm a huge Dolly Madison fan. Clark already did some of my bio. I've written these three books. I try to write books about um, the presidency and the White House from a different perspective. Um, The residence was the perspective of the maids and butlers who worked there, many of whom were African American. Um, And First Ladies, of course, is from the perspective of the woman who has been married to the president. We'll see if that ever changes someday, we get a, a female president. Um, and then the vice president's book is also from a marginalized perspective of the vice president, the person second in command. Uh, first ladies have played a larger part in our history than most people think. I interviewed Dick Cheney, and he was uh, President Ford's chief of staff among his many jobs. And he said he approached Gerald Ford one day to tell him that his wife, Betty, needed to rein back her support of the Equal Rights Amendment. President Ford stared back at him and pointed in the direction of Betty's office and said, go tell her yourself. (laughs) So it tells you a little bit about that dynamic. And of course, Cheney said there was no way he was gonna walk down the hall and, and talk to the First Lady. Seemingly small things that these women do, for instance, Michelle Obama's vegetable garden can have a huge impact on their husband's policies. Um, you know, I think that's an example of the First Lady working in tandem with her husband um, and to, to send the signal about obesity in this country, and then of course he was pushing through health care reform at the time. So there's things they can do to kind of complement their husband's um, administration. I decided to write this first lady's book after the residence because when I talked to the butlers and the chief ushers at the White House, they said the most important person to please is always the first lady. And when a decision comes from the second floor, it means it comes from the residence of the White House and it means it comes from the first lady and that's who you always want to please. And that's the case now. Melania Trump uh, and her chief of staff are in very close touch with the chief usher um, and it really matters what the first lady wants. And also, first ladies are very close to the chief ushers who run the White House. The chief usher is kind of the general manager of the White House. Jackie Kennedy called J.B. West the most powerful man in Washington next to the president. (laughs) Nancy Reagan named her cavalier King Charles Spaniel Rex after chief usher Rex Scouten, and she called Scouten the second most important man in my life. So it's this whole kind of secret hidden world, which is really what I, I wanted to explore. It's the things that we we don't necessarily uh, see from these very public people. We don't really know them, who these First Ladies and Presidents really are, and it's that human connection. In fact, the Obamas have grown so close to one usher named Reginald Dixon that they actually have him working for them in their house in Washington um, because she felt she could trust him so much. So that tells you a lot about these relationships. Uh, Another Betty Ford story. She once got a letter saying, First Ladies are constitutionally required to be perfect. (laughs) And her son, Steve Ford, when he told me that story, he said, you know, my mother was far from perfect. She said she was an ordinary woman in an extraordinary time. Um, Betty Ford, incidentally, is one of the First Ladies that I really grew to admire researching this book because of what she did talking about her breast cancer diagnosis when people weren't talking about breast cancer at the time. Um, her husband's um, press secretary said he was going to issue a press release saying she was dealing with women problems. And she said, absolutely not. And I think it's amazing how far we've come on that issue, that it's, it's hard to believe that there was a kind of shrouded in mystery. And she insisted that it be said exactly what uh, kind of surgery she was having and why she was having it. Lady Bird Johnson said a first lady needs to be a showman and a salesman, a clothes horse and a publicity sounding board with a good heart and a real interest in the folks from all over the country, rich and poor. This is no easy feat. Um, I start my book with Jackie Kennedy because I wanted to talk to people who remember what these women are like. And so when I wrote this book in 2016, I was able to talk to some people who knew Jackie Kennedy. Going back to the Eisenhowers was tricky. I did find one um, White House staffer who was a teenager at the time when the Eisenhowers were in office. Um, And so just talking to these people who knew what these women were like and the profound sense of responsibility from this job where there's no job description and you are under this microscope and how difficult that must be. Um, I'm often asked about what their real concrete accomplishments were. A lot of these first ladies, from Jackie Kennedy to Michelle Obama, have pushed their husbands to nominate a woman to the Supreme Court, for instance. Um, In several instances, they were not successful. Um, Pat Nixon really wanted Richard Nixon to name a woman, and when he came home after his announcement that day of a male uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, there was silence at the dinner table. <laughs> but I wanted to highlight two women who I think are really exemplify the power of the office. Um, Jackie Kennedy, of course, uh, and Nancy Reagan. Um, ja- Jackie is known for her grace and her style. She was a very devoted mother. She said, if you bungle raising your children, nothing else you do matters very much in life. Um, of course, she had a nanny, but she was hands-on as much as, as more than I think you would expect of a woman of that class and that age. Um, I think, of course, one of her most important legacies is how she dealt with her husband's assassination and um, how heroically she handled that, but also it was her White House restoration. She was really smart. She understood the importance of making the White House the most perfect house in the country. Uh, it's amazing because when she first moved in in 1961, she was just in her early 30s at the time. She was shocked at what she saw. Um, she was very upset. I mean, the White House at that time uh, had a, um, the old warehouse on the Potomac that they were using to house these priceless pieces of art that were just laying on the dirt on the ground. And so she was horrified by it. Um, so she wanted to change the decor And she wanted to really let the American public into the White House for the first time. Um, She augmented the work of the White House staff. She brought in top interior decorator Sister Parrish to help with the restoration. Um, She was horrified by Victorian mirrors. She said off to the dungeons with them. She wanted to get rid of a lot of this kind of... She felt that the Eisenhowers had a very old-fashioned approach. When the Kennedys moved in, they wanted to really open it up, make, you know, instead of these giant U-shaped tables that the Eisenhowers used for state dinners, the Kennedys came in and brought cocktail tables so eight to ten people could sit and talk. The Kennedys served cocktails. They let people smoke. Um, really making it kind of a fun atmosphere. They famously invited Nobel uh, Prize winners to the White House and they really wanted to make it a centerpiece of um, American arts. Uh, And she understood the importance of appearances. So she enlisted Henry Francis DuPont, a collector of early American furniture and an heir to the DuPont fortune, to chair the White House Fine Arts Committee. And she created that within a month of moving to the White House. Members of the committee were responsible for searching for museum quality pieces around the country um, and persuading, basically strong-arming their owners to donate them to the White House. She also established the curator's office, Um, and the curator's office today is incredible. I don't know if you know much about Betty Monkman, but she is a curator that had been working there for decades, and I interviewed her for my book, The Residence. And she talked about how these people at the White House know every single piece of furniture exactly where it is, and they are very protective over it. So on the state floor, you can't make a lot of changes. You can't make any changes without going to them first. Um, When Jackie Kennedy first approached the idea of doing this major renovation, President Kennedy's staff thought she was crazy. They said, you don't know what you're doing, you're 31 years old, and she really stood up to the President's advisors and said, I'm going to take this on. There was a lot of concern, and I think you see it with many First Ladies, that they were spending too much money. And, you know, how dare you you spend taxpayer dollars. And that's why she went out and got private donations, which is very smart. Her televised tour of the White House on February 14, 1962, was aired on CBS. And over 80 million people watched it around the world, which is really incredible at the time. And so uh, donations poured in, of course. Uh, When the director yelled, cut, in between takes, Jackie... Unfortunately, chain-smoked nervously. Um, She was very nervous about this performance. Um, It was like an unprecedented moment for a First Lady to open up the White House to the public. And she was naturally a shy, reticent, very patrician woman. Um, and I think it was incredible that she, she pulled this off. And if you've ever seen it, it's wonderful to watch. I mean, you can Google it. She's going through intricate detail of each piece of furniture um, in the White House, and it shows her real love uh, for art and for the home. Of course, it got rave reviews, and there were governor's wives all over the country saying they wanted to redo the governor's mansion after this. <laughs> so um, it was a success. She also was very important to her husband's diplomacy at the time. Um, In May 1961, she went to Paris and Vienna with JFK. This is a famous moment. Of course, she wowed the crowd. She's could speak French fluently, um, and Charles de Gaulle said she, the president of France at the time, said she spoke better French than most French women. And Kennedy at a press conference famously said, I do not think it altogether inappropriate to introduce myself, I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. And I'd enjoy it. So she started out as a woman who felt that she was a liability to her husband. I think that's the most interesting thing about Jackie Kennedy, she thought she was too rich Um, not relatable, she was shy. I think she understood that she was very young um, and very beautiful and kind of she had this unattainable uh, beauty, I think. And then she realized as the weeks went by when she became first lady that she was a huge asset to him. Women around the country wanted to dress like her, look like her and I think it was an unexpected moment for her and she was really coming into her own as first lady. Uh, when the Kennedys arrived in Vienna for the Superbauer Summit in 1961, JFK was meeting Khrushchev for the first time. Jackie actually got along very well with Khrushchev's wife. Um, and Kennedy went into that summit thinking he could get through it just by virtue of his knowledge. Um, he was talking about nuclear test controls and a disarmament agreement. This is in a very important time uh, in the relationship between the US and the Soviet Union. Um, And Khrushchev really bullied Kennedy. This meeting did not go well. But it was Jackie who broke the ice during the meeting. When Khrushchev saw her, his face lit up. And he was doing everything possible to impress her, including telling her stories about how many tractors are made in Soviet factories. And she famously said in her breathy voice, oh, Mr. Chairman, don't bore me with statistics. (laughs) And he roared with laughter, because nobody would talk to the Soviet leader um, this way. And so she was very sharp, very witty, very, very smart. Um, She knew how far she could push. Uh, Him, you know, she would also flatter him talk about the Soviet dogs going into space This was a time when the Soviet space program was ahead of the US program So she knew how to finesse this relationship and headlines afterwards in the New York Times read first lady wins Khrushchev Too," and Smitten Khrushchev is Jackie's happy escort Mm -hmm. Jackie's impact on his wife also diverted attention from this summit that really uh, was a really difficult summit for JFK. He described it as one of the hardest of his presidency. Nancy Reagan is another first lady, I think, who, you know, we all know she had this outsized influence on her husband's administration, but what exactly did she do? Um, I wrote a, an op-ed for the New York Times when she passed away, and what I said was that she was really the happiest first lady. I think next to Barbara Bush, she is the person that really loved this role and kind of understood it. She, of course, took a lot of the slings and arrows. You know, Her husband, when I interviewed her son, Ron Reagan, he said, you know, my dad wanted to be loved, and my mother just really didn't care that much. She was willing (laughs) to take the criticism, (laughs) and she did. Um, you know, she she fired uh, famously fired Don Regan, President Reagan's chief of staff. She did that after he hung up on her several times. Um, you don't hang up on Nancy Reagan and get away with it. Um, and uh, she also orchestrated a grand finale to her husband's presidency. Um, she she was a, a very important to his legacy, and that you know he was known for being this anti-communist warrior who ended the Cold War. And some of that can be attributed to Nancy Reagan and her influence on his foreign policy. Um, so I think that her example is one of the most concrete. Um, there was a great interview where she was asked, you know, what do you think your concrete effect was on your husband's legacy? And she said, oh, no, no, Ronnie knew exactly what he wanted to do from the moment he was elected. And the interviewer pressed her again, and she said, well, maybe the whole Russia thing. <laughs> so she's talking about the Cold War, the most important part of his legacy. Um, A lot of Reagan's very hawkish advisors said arms control was for fools. You know, don't trust uh, the Soviets. They're going to cheat on you. Um, And she was more mainstream. She didn't want her husband going down in history as a man who built this huge nuclear arsenal and and started a a nuclear war, right? She wanted, um, she believed in her husband's slogan of peace through strength. She thought they had done the strength part. Now it's, time to do the peace part, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily know that about Nancy Reagan. In November 1985, uh, Gorbachev and Reagan met for the first time in Geneva, and Reagan had his team on one side of the table, Gorbachev had his team on the other, and Nancy was worried about that because she knew her husband was best on a one-on-one personal uh, situation, so she said, why don't you go out and take a walk? And so the two leaders left the room. They walked around this 18th century villa where they were meeting. And um, they decided they didn't even need to go back into the room for the formal meeting. They had accomplished what they needed to do, just talking to each other uh, outside during this walk. So Geneva was a really incredible breakthrough. Um, It was a policy banning two entire classes of nuclear weapons and effectively ending the Cold War. Um, But it was also you know, the relationship, very personal relationship, built between these two men um, who have gone down in history as these great uh, uh, men of peace, really. And this was the legacy that Nancy Reagan was, was after and she was looking for. And it's actually really uh, incredible, you know, her devotion to her husband. I don't know if you've been to the Reagan Library. It's one of the most beautiful presidential libraries. And um, she could be found after his death sitting outside at his uh, gravesite there by herself many nights. And the staff told me they would just let her, her sit there and she would have a Secret Service agent kind of lurking around to give her time. and This was something she did quite often and I think it's very touching that she wanted to be with him. Um, one of my really favorite stories from this book that I wrote Uh, is about the bond between First Ladies from different parties. I think things are so obviously tense and divisive right now. It's nice to know that uh, there can be this genuine human relationship between two people from different parties. Um, Pat Nixon took Connie Stewart, her chief of staff and press secretary, aside on a quiet day in February 1971 and whispered, Jackie is coming is coming. Nobody is to know, and I'm only telling a few people." So after Kennedy's assassination in 1963, Jackie Kennedy, when she would come to Washington, she was just so upset still for years and years. She didn't come back until 1971. Lady Bird Johnson begged her to come back for the dedication of the the East Garden they named after Jackie Kennedy. And she refused, she sent her mother instead. It was too painful, there were too many memories. And even when she would come to Washington, she would have her chauffeur, you know, make sure that she didn't get anywhere near the White House, she didn't want to see the White House. Uh, She had moved to New York, um, and was trying to raise her kids there and sort of have a semi-normal life for them. And I just thought it was fascinating that the person who convinced her to come was Pat Nixon. And she had invited Jackie and her children, Caroline and John Kennedy, Jr., to visit for the official unveiling of the President's and the First Lady's portraits by Aaron Schickler, which are really stunning portraits you can see in the White House today. And it was a tradition for the former First Family to attend such unveilings, but Jackie really had to be strong-armed into it. And she was told that she, would come, she could come, no one would know. The only person who somehow found out was Helen Thomas. And if you knew her, you might not be surprised. She was told, um, she was promised an interview with Pat Nixon if she didn't reveal what she knew. And so I'm not sure if Pat kept that uh, promise. But somehow, and it's incredible to think that this happened, Jackie Kennedy came to the White House for this visit and nobody knew about it. The press, nobody, only a handful of people on Pat Nixon's staff knew about this visit. And it also brought to life this kind of interesting um, relationship between the Nixons and the Kennedys. Uh, Nixon and Kennedy had worked across the hall from each other um, in the Senate when Nixon was Eisenhower's uh, vice president. His office was right near Kennedy's. The Nixons were invited to the Kennedy's wedding in 1953, though they didn't attend. Um, And I think we think of them as these bitter rivals, you know, during the 1960 election. And yet there was a real uh, common, you know, respect between these two families. So finally, you know, Pat is able to convince Jackie to come. They send a private plane for her. And during the top secret meeting, the White House was on lockdown. There was no traffic between the normally bustling corridors connecting the east and the west wings. Most people on the staff didn't know about it. Only four Nixon aides were told about this meeting. Um, So John Kennedy Jr. was 10 at the time, and Caroline was 13. And it's just an incredible moment where you have the Nixons and their two daughters who were in their early 20s, Trisha and Julie, welcoming John Kennedy Jr. and Caroline Kennedy to this home that they had lived in when they were little, little kids. I mean, John Kennedy Jr. was a toddler. Um, Caroline Kennedy had gone to nursery school in the White House. Jackie Kennedy set up um, a nursery school in the Solarium, which I think is one of the very sweetest stories. And actually I interviewed a, uh, a White House usher who described what it was like watching Caroline come in after her father had been killed. They allowed her to stay, of course, for a few weeks and finish out the term there, and how. He just felt so happy seeing her try to have a sense of normalcy as she would walk back in to go up to the solarium to finish that time, um, that school year out, which must have been really heartbreaking for the staff to watch too because they grew very close to these kids. They loved them. In fact, he told me one of his favorite memories was teaching Caroline how to do a somersault (laughs) in the residence, which I thought was really sweet. Um, So so the Nixon daughters, they stood in the hallway outside the Oval Office to let the Kennedys have a private moment inside. It was the place where their father had spent so many hours and where then two-year-old John Kennedy Jr. had poked his head out from underneath the Resolute desk in that famous photo. And then when they came to the President Kennedy's portrait in the cross hall, Jackie was quiet and thanked Pat for displaying it so prominently. The Nixon daughters dreaded showing the portrait to the children, but they were relieved when they told their mother how much they liked it. And so Trisha and Julie continued the tour with their three dogs in tow, including Nixon's beloved two-year-old Irish setter. And it was kind of a, a sweet moment. The two families had dinner in the family dining room on the second floor, and President Nixon joined them. The day after the visit, So Jackie was a stickler about thank you notes, as I'm sure you can imagine. So these, you can find them at the Kennedy Library. They're literally the next day. John Kennedy Jr. wrote this note. Um, And so he's 10 years old and big block letters. And it's very sweet. He says, I can never thank you more for showing us the White House. I really liked everything about it. You were so nice to show us everything. I don't think I could remember much about the White House, but it was really nice seeing it all again. (laughs) Very, like a 10-year-old, very sweet. He said that when he sat on Lincoln's bed where his father had slept, he made a wish, and it was that he would do well in school. He said he really loved the dogs. And as soon as I came home, my dogs kept sniffing me. Maybe they remember the White House, too. It's really sweet. And then Caroline also wrote a very touching letter that you can find at the Kennedy Library uh, where she says, your Swiss chef is the best thing that ever came out of Switzerland except maybe the chocolate. (laughs) So she was five days shy of her sixth birthday when her father was killed. So um, it was really, it's just a really moving moment. And there was this... Letter that um, Rose Kennedy wrote, uh, thanking Pat Nixon, saying, "You know, this you can't imagine what you've done for my my daughter-in-law. Doing, you know, inviting her back to see the house again." And Jackie wrote, "The day I always dreaded turned out to be one of the most precious ones I've spent with my children. May God bless you all." I just thought it was a really um, special moment. It's a very positive moment, and I think we could use more of those. Um, Another thing that first ladies, of course, always have to deal with is their husbands' often titanic egos. Um, Lady Bird Johnson is probably the best example of that. LBJ was very, very difficult. Um, In fact, uh, Joe Califano told me that it was Lady Bird who really kept him from having a breakdown. I mean, He was essentially a manic depressive. And um, he tortured the staff about the shower, the White House shower. And it got so bad that the head plumber at the White House actually did have a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized over the shower because it was never coming in. Uh, hard enough, the temperature was never right, they had several different nozzles put in, they diverted water pumps, I mean it was a huge, huge ordeal. And so um, he would yell, if I can move 10,000 troops in a day, you can fix this bathroom in you <laughs> want it. So Lady Bird, from her perspective, she just wanted to make this go away. And she told the chief usher at the time, you know, she said, I guess you've been told about the shower. And he said, yes, ma'am. She said, anything that's done here or needs to be done, remember this. My husband comes first, the girl's second, and I will be satisfied with what's left. (laughs) I thought that was very (laughs) sad, Um, but also it's of Going back in time, you know, this was a woman who grew up, um, her life was really, she was very devoted to her husband, but she was also a crucial part of his presidency and really evening him out, and I don't think he could have been president without her. Also, she was very wealthy and she supported him financially. Um, so she, uh, she's a first lady who I think you can't really say enough about because she also famously did this whistle-stop tour after the Civil Rights Act was passed. She was a woman of the South, and she was going down to the South saying, you know, support my husband. And it, things got so badly, so dangerous back then that um, there were actually bomb threats on this whistle-stop tour, and the Secret Service would have to check the railroad tracks um, there were people dressed in, you know, Ku Klux Klan uniforms shouting, um, Blackbird, go home. And she famously really stood up to them. I always thought that would make a great, a great movie, I mean, how she, she would get in the back of the train and talk to these huge crowds who were so angry in the South uh, about her husband's passage of the Civil Rights Act. And she was an emissary there, and um, I don't think he would have won had it not been for for her going back to uh, you know her homeland. She had this wonderful Texas drawl, and and this was where she was born and raised. And she was supporting this, so she said, "It's time for a change," and she wanted them to get on board. Um, Again, Betty Ford, I do think, is an incredible uh, incredible first lady. I have this great photo of her standing on the cabinet room table. And she was a Martha Graham dancer, trained dancer. Um, and the, her husband's last full day in office, she took David Kennerly, who was the White House photographer at the time, and said, come in here. Summoned him into the cabinet room and she stood on the table and posed. And Gerald Ford never found out about it until (laughs) decades later. And he just about fell off his chair, she said. And uh, she said something funny like, you know, this is as close as I'm getting to a seat at the table. (laughs) It's Very sweet. So she was a really brave first lady. And you can see what I tried to do with this book is I went back and looked at a lot of these letters between first ladies. And she was really a linchpin. I mean, she was very close to both Lady Bird Johnson and Barbara Bush. Um, and the three of them were were great friends. And there's um, a really wonderful photo of the three of them sitting on uh, the porch of Lady Bird Johnson's uh, ranch. And here are these three former first ladies just sitting and chatting, uh, visiting with each other. And a tour bus <coughs> drove by. And people were shocked. So all these flashes went off because no one was expecting to see it. Um, And I think just, you know, so much is said about Barbara Bush and especially with her passing fairly recently. But I did, I interviewed her for this book um, and Laura Bush and I talked about um, the resident staff with her. I think a lot of first ladies don't want to talk about themselves. They'd rather talk about other people. They're used to people trying to talk to them. So she was most interested in talking about the resident staff. And of all the, all the first ladies and presidents, the Bushes were almost to a person. I interviewed more than 58 staff, uh, butlers, maids, chefs, almost to a person, their favorite family to work for because they were very uh, personally invested in the people who worked for them. I think part of that is that they were used to having staff and it wasn't kind of awkward for them to have people around. The Clintons um, and the Obamas and the Carters you know, didn't grow up with that. And I think there is something to be said for for that kind of feeling of awkwardness, feeling like you're never alone. And the Bushes were able to deal with it really well. She would um, go for a morning swim, Barbara Bush, every morning, rain or shine, and she'd wear her little bathrobe, and she'd go down and check on the cookie man in the pastry shop and poke her head in and to the florists. And she just loved the White House. And in fact, one of the interesting things about being first lady—and I'm not sure about if this has been the case with Melania Trump—but almost every first lady is shocked that they have to pay for their food. So in the residence, you have—if you have friends over for coffee—you actually get the bill, unless it's an official event. And um, so Rosalind Carter was so upset she started asking for leftovers to be served <laughs> because it was getting insane. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, you order an egg, and here's how much an egg costs. And, and for some of these families that didn't have a lot of money, this was really at the beginning. Now, of course, when you become a former president and first lady, you can make lots of money. Uh, but back then, they weren't independently wealthy. And so I think that it was really difficult for, for them. And every first lady complains to the chief usher when they move in. Uh, almost to a a person except for Barbara Bush. And she said living in the White House was a dream. The food was wonderful. I don't know why, you know, I asked her about it. She said, I don't know why anyone would ever complain. You know, you you don't pay for the groundskeepers. There are a lot of things you don't pay for, but they do even for dry cleaning and things like that. Little things that you don't think about, they do have to pay for. Um, And I don't think we necessarily should feel badly for them about that, but I think it's a shock to the system for them. And they really do become close to the people who work for them. Um, the Bushes put everyone at ease around them. And uh, when I interviewed her, she told me, Barbara Bush told me a sweet story. Um, during the Persian Gulf War, she was anxiously watching the news. Um, she was waiting for her husband to walk in. And the major d' George Haney asked her, what would you like to drink? Because every night they would have a cocktail. And, uh, and what do you think Pops would like to drink, he asked her. And Pops, you know, even for the resident staff, you don't call the president Pops. That was his nickname uh, from his youth and no one outside the family ever used that uh, nickname and she laughed at the memory she said i said to george i said he knew i was joking and i knew he was joking we were that close i said george you can't say you can't call the president of the united states pops and without missing a beat george replied trust me mrs bush at the white house presidents come and go but george haney stays <laughs> and it's true because they stay from one administration to the next so um, I think that they, they, the resident staff have incredible stories to tell. I've talked to some of them about life there now, which is really interesting. But as you can imagine, it's harder to, find, to get people to talk about the current environment um, most of the people want to wait until they are retired uh, to really get into it. Uh, but anyway, it is it is really an honor to be speaking here today. I'm very excited. It's such a historic church. So, thank you very much. And um, I would love to open it up to questions if you have.
0: She doesn't get to conclude it, or she doesn't get to go forward. Let's just say be best. Mm-hmm. When have we heard anything about be best? I mean, I, it just seems sad that she does little programs mm-hmm. that she's initiated, and I think her staff is frustrated by that.
1: His staff, which probably clamps down on mm-hmm.
0: everything she does. Could you just repeat that for the benefit? Okay.
1: So I just. Yeah. It's my sense. Of yeah. So she, you're asking about. Um, about Melania Trump and how it seems like these these starts and stops. I mean, she announced be best and what's happened with it. And we don't really know the dynamic between the East Wing and the West Wing, which is always fraught, I think, in any White House, even in the Obama administration, which was relatively drama-free. You know, there was tension between when she would go out and say something and would that be stepping on what he was saying. It's all this coordination, and East Wing staffers often Mm -hmm. feel like they're not included on meetings and all that. Um, but I think you're right, I think she has a, I know she, her staff is half the size of Michelle Obama's staff. And uh, while her chief of staff did work in the Bush administration, um, some of them don't have the kind of in-depth years of experience. Um, so I think that is tough for her. And I think it's also difficult to get move forward on an issue like cyberbullying, for instance. Mm-hmm. When there is this obvious um, hypocrisy there, I do think the opioid uh, issue is one that she's taken up, and there have been some positive steps there where they've shown her you know she does very well with children and hospitals and you know going to to kind of meet with with uh, children um, and parents and kind of the sort of emotional side of things. I think I don't know. I think that the the biggest problem for her is the fact that she is married to obviously one of the most divisive presidents we've ever had and then also having this very kind of skeletal staff which they pride themselves on because they say look, we're not spending as much money as the Obamas did. But you're also not getting as much done because you don't have people around you who know necessarily how to do it what they're doing.
0: Kate, a question about the relationship between Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush. Famously, Nancy Mm -hmm. Reagan was very antagonistic to Barbara Bush. What accounts for that?
1: Well, uh, when I I talked to a really good friend of Nancy Reagan's and she said, you know, they just didn't get to know each other that well, which I thought was funny because of course, for eight years, (laughs) (laughs) I was president. and there are all sorts of stories about nancy reagan being critical of barbara bush's weight and things like that and saying hurtful things to her Um, some people who worked for barbara bush told me they thought that nancy reagan was jealous of her very close relationship with her children because nancy reagan famously had a difficult relationship with her children Um, in fact her memoir which i encourage you to read it's amazing it's called my turn uh, Nancy Reagan. It's one of the most blunt, honest memoirs I've ever read, um, where she dedicates it to our kids, and she says, I hope one day you'll understand. And I think that it's a really um, amazingly honest uh, memoir, where she lashes out at people in her husband's administration, and it's, it's incredible. But I think there's that jealousy, and unfortunately, they could have been a good team, I think, um, but they just didn't get along. The Reagans brought in this kind of Hollywood glamour. The Bushes were old money, patrician. So I think there was just jealousy there, unfortunately. Um, but, uh,
0: On that point, is it true that she was never invited to the White House? Before?
1: Yes. Yeah, isn't that amazing? She
0: was never, invited, she
1: to was was never invited to the residence. The yeah, residence. Um, All those eight years... So there are photos of the Reagans with the Bushes in the Naval Observatory, but not in the White House, which says so much about, you know, that relationship between Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan is pretty interesting, as many books have been written about it, but just how protective she was of him and who would be in his inner circle. Um, Stuart Spencer, who was a Reagan uh, campaign aide, said, you know, she was the human resources department, Nancy Reagan. She decided... Who, who was in and who was out, and so I guess the Bushes were out <laughs> for Barbara Bush. Yes? So you haven't
0: mentioned Hillary. Yes. Can you say something
1: about her? It's hard to get to all of them. Um, she said, you haven't mentioned Hillary. Can you say something about her? I know, and I, uh, I apologize for that. You know, it's, it's tricky because there's limited time to get to all the First Ladies, and some are more controversial than others. I do think Hillary Clinton... Uh, Obviously, an example of a first lady who was in, coming into office really wanting to play um, a very big role in her husband's um, presidency. And with health care reform, she really, she really did try to. And she later said to Laura Bush, you know, I went too far. I wish I hadn't had my own office in the West Wing. That really backfired. Um, I think that she thought the country was ready for more than it was. Because if you look at the polling numbers at the time, when she came in, people were supportive. I forget exactly the numbers, but it was more positive than negative. And then once she started getting really active in her husband's administration, they just started to, to plummet because people said, you know, we didn't elect you. And I think it says a lot about um, what we think a woman's role is. I mean, she was just as educated and just as capable as her husband. Um, many would say, to be involved, but there's always this sense that First Ladies need to stick to their lane, uh, unfairly or not. I mean, it's just the way the American public views it, I think. Yes?
0: A um, hundred years ago, Melania Trump been considered the perfect First Lady. I mean, she's glamorous, she speaks like seven languages, she supports her husband, she keeps her mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Now we go to Hillary Clinton, who tried to bring it into a new age yeah. where the white, she actually practically was a co-president yeah. at some point there. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my question is, where are we going on what the, the public is expecting of a quote, First Lady or First Lady <coughs>
1: So where are we going on what the pres- public is expecting on a First Lady or First Gentleman? I mean, I was so interested to see if Bill Clinton would be the First Gentleman, right? Because I think that would have maybe changed things a little bit. No one would expect him to be hosting teas. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he would. Maybe he would. It would be fun. Um, but, uh, may, you know, I think it depends on whether or not we're kind of going back to a time where things, you know, used to be, I think you're right that Melania Trump in many ways is, a hundred years ago, she would have been the perfect first lady, although being born outside the U.S. is really unique, only the second first lady to have been, but you're right, she, people have this concept that, you know, free Melania, she's a prisoner in the White House and all that, that's really not the case from my reporting and what other people have said. I think she's very much supportive of her husband and his policies. Um, So it's anyone's guess. I I do think someday we'll have a first gentleman and then I think that that is what it will take to see if the the spouse can have like a real career. We've
0: got time for one last question. Uh, Just a quick question. And I wanna mention of course Pete Buttigieg is married to a man so that might be very interesting if he wins. Men in there, so. Um, But anyway, um, neither here nor there. Edith Wilson is someone that always fascinates me, and she's credited very um, frequently as being actually sort of the first female president Mm -hmm. because when Woodrow had his stroke, she wouldn't let anyone in to see him. She would. Mm -hmm. She sort of made the decisions. In your reporting and your research, do you find that holds up that Edith was really calling a lot of those shots when Woodrow was uh, kind Mm -hmm. of convalescing, shall we say, from the very debilitating stroke
1: that he suffered? um, I'm not meaning to punt this question, but I could not possibly have gotten too much into her because I did the other, I did 10 first ladies. So all I know is what I've read about her. I didn't do in-depth research, but everything I've read does indicate that that was uh, the case, absolutely. I think that would be a great book. Just
0: something. Yeah.
1: yeah. Kate, can,
0: can you I stick around it? for a minute or so? Sure. Yeah. If there are additional questions, Kate can stick around. Please join me in thanking Kate. Thank you.